Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 4,275 of the world's foremost source of reliably unreliable half-truth speculation and analysis of the latest developments in the human race's fierce battle with itself in the evolutionary race. I'm Andy Zaltzman, Lord of all I survey, albeit that the only surveys I do are of me. And it's time to do this week's survey, right now in fact. Uh, here's the first question on the survey. Uh, do you think Andy Zaltzman should remain as host of the Bugle podcast? I think I'll put down, don't know. Uh, no change in the polling on that one. It is the 25th of September 2023 and today I'm joined from the unremittingly utopian harmony fest and glittering beacon of mutual tolerance and respect that is the United States of America by Josh Gondelman. Josh, uh, welcome back to the Bugle. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Happy to be a utopian correspondent. <laughs> and also joining us here in London, in the enduring land of grudgery and recriminational stropledom that is the UK. It's the one last best hope for a brighter future. Ian Smith. Ian, can you live up to that hype? Oh, I don't know. It's a lot, it's a lot of pressure, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> well, I think you're up to it. I think you're up to it. Well, what worries me is why no one... and I've only just finding out about this now. Right, OK. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm, I'm on the committee, and we pick you as, the, as the, our last one, last best hope for a brighter future. So, oh right, yeah, don't well, I best down. start doing some prep. <laughs> um, uh, Josh, you, you join us on well an, an exciting day. The uh, it seems that the Yom the right- Kippur. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh yes, of course. Thanks for the uh, reminder. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the writers' strike is coming to an end. Can you just fill us in on on what's happened and why? It seems that way. It seems like the uh, Writers Guild of America and the AMPDP, the, the Alliance of Studios, has come to a tentative agreement. So there aren't a ton of details yet, but it is really exciting news and hopefully more good news to come. Uh, it's been 146 days, and so I think people were are really excited to hear that we've reached this tentative agreement. SAG-AFTRA is still on strike, and hopefully that will get resolved soon as well. And then I'm excited to go back to being just regular unemployed. That's what's on the horizon <laughs> for me. And, I mean, how do you think this is going to change writing? In, in, uh, because people have been, you know, they've got 146 days of pure quality backed up in them. Is this going to just all come splurging out into you know, the greatest television ever ever created that's right it's going to be like uncrimping the garden hose for <laughs> just eleven thousand writers brains all at once and it is going to be yeah it's going to be a geyser of excitement and quality and uh... <laughs> um ian since you were lost on the bugle you've uh, been to the edinburgh festival where you um lost uh, you lost the festival um yeah hard luck I mean, you, you were announced as one of the, the near runners-up, so congratulations for that. But, I mean, how has that, that defeat weighed weighed on you? Um, yeah, well, because I guess it's quite good. I, I was nominated for um, three varying quality awards and didn't <laughs> didn't win any of them. So um, <laughs> the, there's a moment where you feel very proud of yourself, but you know that there's an inevitable crushing defeat coming, um, <laughs> not once, but three times. <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite a testing month, a bit right. of a roller coaster. Well, you'll but, fit right in on the bugle as a serial loser. That's that's why <laughs> we have you on this show. <laughs> in more positive news, though, I I got a text message from my voiceover agent today saying that I might be able to audition for a role in the CBB's animated series Dog Squad. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, maybe in a few months' time, I'll I'll be too big to be coming on this podcast. <laughs> Who's the real winner now? <laughs> Ian's last performance uh, in The Shed, Andy, in yeah. May 
featured uh, Ian panicking about what he should do for his Edinburgh show this year. Oh, right. So it's okay. nice to see the full narrative arc yeah, of yeah. that show. <laughs> um, well, yeah, congratulations on uh, on doing so well. And we will give you a chance to plug your imminent run at Soho Theatre later in the show. But first, as I said, we are recording on the 25th of September 2023. On this day in 1690, the first ever newspaper to appear in uh, America was published. Uh, public occurrences, both foreign and domestic, um, lasted one issue uh, in 1690 before it was closed down by the British colonial authorities. Very unlucky for public occurrences, both foreign and domestic, to launch on one of the very few momentary micro-periods of British history when a remorseless commitment to free speech has not been on the British core values list. It was shut down uh, for uh, reasons that um, the, the 1690s could probably uh, share with us at some point. It does um, you know, raise an interesting question, though. Should all newspapers be restricted to a maximum of one issue? Would that, would that lead to a, a healthier... <laughs> media landscape if they weren't allowed to kind of just keep festering uh, the society from within uh, i'd be in favor of that uh, but the problem with only ever having one issue on the on the 25th of september 1690 was that we never found out the answers to the daily quiz in that first <laughs> issue but luckily i can <laughs> share them now the answers uh, to the quiz uh, question one uh, ferdinand the third preceded leopold the first as holy roman emperor uh, it was of course the new york bunny wangers who won the uh, inaugural 1689 season of the american rabbit hurling championship uh, question three she was his cousin question four probably a witch question five definitely a witch and question six the best-selling children's book of 1689 was of course that's not my pope uh, so uh, that on this day in 1690 the only ever issue of the greatest newspaper of all time as always while we're on the subject of newspapers, a section of this audio newspaper is going straight in the bin, uh, and it's featuring a man who's, well, published a lot of newspapers, Rupert Fox Murdoch, so-called because of the stench he leaves behind the, in the detritus of public discourse after he's rummaged around with it, is stepping down as the boss of Fox and News Corp, and our section in the bin looks at where now for Rupert Murdoch. What next? For him, he did say as he stepped down, the battle for freedom of speech and ultimately the freedom of thought has never been more intense, and he can certainly take a lot of credit for quite how f***ing intense that battle has become. Um, and you can decide what side of that battle you think he was on. Murdoch, of course, is best known for being in charge of News Corp when Times Online launched the Bugle podcast. Uh, Rupal didn't have a particularly hands-on role, uh, though, as, as I remember. Um, but what next for him? Well, of course, he has been linked with the Man United job with Eric Ten Hag under pressure. An experienced leader such as Rupert Murdoch could be what the Red Devils need to turn around their faltering season. Alternatively, he might open a coffee shop and or fair trade sustainable fashion boutique. Uh, option three, uh, to pursue his childhood dream of a career in interpretive dance. Uh, he is apparently working on a solo ballet based on the Australian mythological frog Tiddalik, one of the star amphibians of Aboriginal creation stories teaming up with tennis star Pat Rafter to save a distressed platypus called Mildred from being kidnapped by aliens. Uh, can't wait to see that. Uh, option four is that he could be put out to stud to breed the next generation of democracy-skewing media billionaire truth splatterers. Um, some uh, suggest that might already have happened. Uh, another option is to start a new news empire from scratch. Rupert apparently looking at starting up a local newspaper in the rural Bolivian town of Bermejo. Good challenge for Rupert to see if he's still got those skills at the age of 92. Another option is to run for elected office. 
Uh, not a particularly efficient way of wielding power. In fact, uh, let me do the maths. It's 0.03% as effective as what he's done previously, so he might not be interested in that. And of course, the most likely option is the belated formation of his prog folk band of quite literal 90s music with fellow nonagenarians Buzz, Honestly, The Moon Is Real, Aldrin, Henry Kissy Kissinger, and retired monarch and celebrity own death faker, The Queen. Tour dates imminent. <laughs> Well, I mean, whatever he does, it's he's he's really been in an intense position for a long time. He's really just probably whatever it is going to take a step back and enjoy a little period of transition before his what clearly is his ultimate goal of hell, uh, <laughs> eternal hell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess you don't want to rush into that, do you? Um, uh, no, you don't want to move from one big thing right into the next big thing. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, maybe that's what hell needs. We'll we will actually touch on uh, on hell uh, later later in the show. Ian Smith, of course, is our <laughs> hell correspondent. Um, we'll have uh, all the latest uh, from there. <laughs> Top story this week: opening gates news. Well, life is in many ways. If you want it to be all about opening gates, closing gates, and choosing whether or not to open or close gates, both literal. And, of course, metaphorical gates. And if you're a surgeon specialising in tech billionaires, Bill Gates is too. But one gate I've generally been sceptical of opening is the gates of hell. But it turns out they have now been officially opened, according to the UN Secretary-General, uh, Antonio, go with your Guterres. Uh, humanity has opened the gates of hell. Ian, I mean... Generally, people have been opposed to opening the gates of hell. Is is this a? Do you think this is a good move, uh, or or not, on behalf of humanity? Well, I, I think I just assumed this must have happened ages ago. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like a um, a shocking development. Just more like a reminder. Because <laughs> um, yeah, he he said as well that um, we're heading towards a dangerous and unstable world, and if we're not in that now, what what is coming up? <laughs> Um, I, I think to say something that's going to make us feel um, scared, it would have to get to sort of uh, Cormac McCarthy, the road levels <laughs> that he has to come on stage and say we're we're heading um, we're heading towards a world where we're carrying all our possessions around in a trolley, trying to protect <laughs> our children from cannibals. Um, and I think even then, some people would see that as quite an aspirational lifestyle. <laughs> There's two sides to that, right? Some people might hear that and go, I'm going to have to protect my children to be a cannibal. And then other people might think, I'm going to get to eat a kid. <laughs> I've always wanted to. <laughs> two sides to every coin. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that's that positive American attitude you bring, uh, Josh. I mean, yeah, that's right. It's, it's, you know, America, I mean, opening the gates of hell is, is pretty much, you know, a summary of American politics 2016 and following years. I mean, do, are people concerned about what might come out of the gates of hell or are they hoping for like an improvement? If the forces of evil from within the bowels of hell actually come out and start you know, working in American politics, will this improve things for America as a nation? <laughs> well, I do think there is about half the country that is against opening the gates of hell pretty firmly or like we should at least means test what it would do to open <laughs> the gates of hell and then we've got the other half that wants to kind of kiss the end of the world right on the apocalypse and <laughs> i i do think that climate change right it, it is hell is an apt 
metaphor for what's happening because if it gets warmer it will be spring break everywhere all the time and i can't imagine a more torturous set of circumstances under which to live other than cormac mccarthy's spring break <laughs> his his lost novel uh yeah so so he was uh, Guterres was was specifically referring to the environment and uh you know i don't know what you think of the environment if you're for or against it but it's proved to be a very irritating <laughs> opponent for us humans, and particularly now as we find ourselves forced into the into kowtowing to the woke agenda of wanting the planet to remain inhabitable beyond the economically crucial next five to ten years. And, you know, obviously there's those who think the environment is a hoax, or that the reason we get once-in-a-millennium weather events about once every three months is not because the environment has changed, but because time has changed, and millenniums are in fact only 12 weeks long these days, <laughs> or even who think that what's the point in having a planet to live on in 200 years' time if your quarterly economic figures don't start improving now. So, I mean, it's it's not quite as clear-cut an issue as destroying the environment and the planet is bad, uh, and you know maybe the UN needs to have a little more flexibility uh, on that. It, um, it is alarming to hear diplomats invoke biblical imagery right that's not their purview that's truly like if a priest was like you have a 0.7 percent chance of survival and you're like whoa you really shifted the paradigm father <laughs> um and he made these comments at a one-day climate summit and i was very relieved that there was a one-day climate summit because i think that what the world needs in these times of global boiling is another summit not just any summit but a one-day summit that is preparing for another summit later in the year because there is no problem too big that it cannot be solved by throwing good summits after bad to get it fixed at some point in the next 300 years <laughs> the the next summit as well cop 28 is in dubai um so if they're worried about things getting hotter just hold it in norway <laughs> what to make things seem seem better that's, that's it was, good thinking it would feel cooler right yeah i think i think <laughs> that could work um, I was going to say, how do you how do you get a climate summit in Dubai? That feels like a like a World Cup level of bribery must have been involved. <laughs> yeah, it's not that obvious place to uh, to have it, is it? And you know, as always with with climate summits, it will involve a f of lot of people flying a, f of a long way for not very much time and not doing a great deal with it. I did feel a little sorry for Guterres. I mean, his face, as you'd expect, I guess, from the UN Secretary General, his face very much says, "I." F hate my job and you know there must be a day when he just thinks oh can we just talk about something less depressing than all the stuff i have to talk about so i do feel a bit sorry for him do, do you think at the un conferences they have a uh, silly story at the end like on the news <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so, i mean what would you i mean if you if you were a delegate at the un conference and that's surely just a matter of time in um what what uh, i mean what, what kind of thing would you would you tag on to the end just to perk things up Usually it, it's like a record-breaking size bit of food. <laughs> That's the crowd pleaser to come on and say, um, "Well, we've made the uh, world's longest baguette, so it can't be it can't be all bad, can it?" Speaking of uh, warming, this world record size pizza was cooked in an oven that gets up to five hundred fifty <laughs> degrees. Um, there was a, an article uh, here about well the impact that these things are having on the, the younger generation. And a, a survey for the Prince's Trust in the UK found that young people are now abandoning their dreams and ambitions because of a range of factors, including the cost of living crisis, but also the sort of doom-laden state of the environment. And this was presented as a bad news story. And to me, 
I mean, this is one of the few silver linings from this because, I mean, it mm-hmm. used to be that it took, you know, I don't know, a decade, two decades, sometimes even three decades for society and life to crush the spirit of the young until they just give up all hope. But now we're getting it done by the time people are in their mid-twenties. And this is just a rare example of efficiency in the modern economy. And uh, I'm absolutely right on board with it. I agree. I think we, the last few generations have been encouraged to live their dreams. And that's what got us into this mess, right? Dreams. <laughs> In Britain, there's been, well, an interesting moods in the, the environment debates, Ian. Uh, Rishi Sunak, the um, interim prime minister, has jumped once more into the burning breach and chucked some more soothing matches into the fire. Uh, he's announced various rollbacks of British environmental commitments. Um, he's delaying the phase-out of gas boilers and petrol cars. And he also announced he was scrapping a lot of things that weren't going to happen anyway but had kind of been mentioned so that if they were to happen, which they never were going to happen, then they could easily have happened. And he's presented this as him jumping to the defence of ordinary British people and stopping things that weren't going to happen happening to them. Um, and with the Conservatives riding so low in the poll, Sunak clearly is jumping between environmental bandwagons in an effort to steer his government's Titanic to a slightly less deep and soggy section of the electoral seabed. Do, do you think this will prove effective i mean he is relying on people just ignoring the fact that he is making shit up that he's going to stop from happening that wasn't going to happen like people being forced to have seven different bins in their homes which wasn't going to happen i mean what do you th- do you think this is the, the the way for politicians now to just make things up that weren't going to happen and then present themselves as heroes for stopping them happening it probably is the best way to get an electorate enthusiastic because I mean, most people don't look these things up. Like, yeah. um, most people don't fact-check anything. So if you, if you say a thing happened and I stopped it, you're probably just going to believe someone. Um, like, I think if I told my friends, um, oh, I, I saw a, a woman getting her handbag stolen and I chased after the person and I gave her a handbag back, but my friends aren't going to be checking the CCTV cameras <laughs> of the area I said it was going to happen. Um they're just going to believe me. I'll maybe give myself a black eye, just punch myself in the face. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's very... Um, but even seven seven bins, I can't think of seven categories <laughs> of waste that could go in bins. I I tried to list it, and all, I got recycling food waste, garden waste, um, human waste. Mm-hmm. And then all I could do was miscellaneous, <laughs> and, and then I've gone whites and yolks. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't feel right no i mean that's a lot of bins isn't it seven mm, seven yes. different bins that we'd have been forced forced to have similarly there are other other suggestions uh the number of passengers you are going to be allowed to have in your car and these weren't so much um concrete proposals they were things that have been vaguely floated as ideas for putative moments in the future. Um, but it was presented by Sunak as if we we're going to be forced to share cars with people we'd never met who were going in completely different directions to us and were legally entitled to sit in the back seat, threateningly revving a chainsaw. Um, so, I mean, it's a weird thing, isn't it? I mean, you can't scrap something that wasn't going to happen and say, well, I can't and would not accuse the Prime Minister of losing credibility or authority or legitimacy. That I mean, that similarly, on those grounds, I couldn't say that. Um, I mean, Josh, what did it, I don't know if you, you've been sort of following this this story mm-hmm. 
over here. But again, the, the environment seems to become this sort of political issue where it, it's almost sort of being performatively wrong on the environment seems to be electorally effective. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're talking about this is the future, and I'm I'm saying this is last year's, this is old news <laughs> for us. That's classic. We, um, Although I do think the uh, there's no better way to fulfill campaign promises than to promise to solve problems that don't exist. <laughs> That's you're batting a thousand easy yeah. right oh uh hey no no um extraterrestrials are going to come down to earth and launch nuclear weapons at our uh at our heads of state done well, done 100 done um joe biden interestingly we got some good climate news over here joe biden started a uh it's a climate core the american climate core which will employ twenty thousand americans in green energy and environmental restoration jobs and on one hand, I am happy to see any concrete step in the right direction. But on the other hand, by by like employing 20,000 people in this climate core, it's like saying, oh, you want a livable climate? You f***ing do it. Huh? <laughs> what do you think about that? Uh, Sunak also said, for too many years, politicians and governments of all stripes have not been honest about the costs and trade-offs. And he was talking about the environment. But in a country that voted for Brexit, in which he supported Brexit, and it was entirely founded on not being honest about costs and trade-offs. There was a, the heroic levels of hypocrisy that, that politicians reach for now. In a way, you, you have to admire it. It's like watching Armand Duplantis do the pole vault. You think, I mean, he shouldn't be able to go as high as he does, but somehow he keeps finding finding. Well, he stood in front of a lectern as he made this speech uh, with a new slogan on the front, uh, saying, long-term decisions for a brighter future. I don't know if that was the first instance of a party managing to get two screeching U-turns into one pithy slogan, um, or just shows <laughs> the dangers of lecterns not being wide enough to fit the whole slogan on, uh, and that they missed off the words at the end, long-term decisions for a brighter future, are absolutely not on the f***ing agenda, or are the kind of woke <laughs> shit we won't have any truck with, vote conservative, to ram the final nail into the coffin of the future. Also, I think we're maybe being unfair because when I think a conservative leader doesn't mean what we mean when they say long term because their sort of life expectancy in that job is about three months <laughs> so they probably see long term as like a six-week plan right butterfly politics right they're mm. <laughs> they're on the andy zaltzman 12-week millennium uh, con <laughs> concept of time <laughs> um uh, and it wasn't just sunak uh still surprising after all this time home secretary suella bravman um, in a rare shaft of honesty and accuracy, he said, we are not going to save the planet, and then spoiled it all by carrying on uh, and finishing the sentence by bankrupting the British people, which which is a real shame that that is not an option for saving the planet, because if you could save the planet by bankrupting the British people, we would have people in our government who are genuinely world-leading environmental superheroes, and we would have to reinterpret <laughs> Liz Truss's prime ministership as an effective, if extreme, just-stop oil protest, and... Sure, I'm not saying I'm not saying I agree with the technique she chose to use. She shouldn't have inconvenienced ordinary people to make her point as much as she did, but at least it got the message across. And uh, Bravman also said that net zero targets were goals, not straitjackets. Um, but let's not forget, you don't need to score a goal to win a football match. And you know, really, we just need to grind out our nil-nil draw against the environment, take it to a replay, maybe try and force it to penalties. Hope the environment bottles it under pressure in a game it knows it should have won. It is the British way. 
I'd also love to see a football game where the team have to wear straight jackets. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to see someone get up after a foul. Right. Well, it would do away with those controversial handball calls, wouldn't it? She's really writing off the, the potential joys of straight jackets. Ian's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I don't know if there's a single sport that wouldn't be more entertaining to watch if everyone involved wasn't wearing a straight jacket. Oh, snooker? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, it'd be funny. <laughs> It's uh, always good to look to, for, for ways to improve sport. Uh, the chair of Ford UK said she wanted only three things from the British government, ambition, commitment and consistency, which is a request which, based on the record of this government, has as much chance of uh, success as asking your pet anaconda for legs, well-researched tennis punditry and a fine baritone voice. <laughs> Anacondas, really, they, they only make a singular demand, and that's buns, huh? <laughs> Well, it's been a while since we had a uh, some Mixlot reference. Lord Mixlot, now of course, uh, since he was a noble. <laughs> of course. On uh, some related topic, um, we, we've talked a bit about the HS2 rail line over the years on the Bugle, a flagship new rail line that was supposed to revolutionise transport across the nation. Um, in particular, across the, the north of England, where um, there's been so little investment in the rail network over over recent decades, and it was going to revolutionise uh, rail transport in the north of England by making it about 10 minutes quicker to get from London to Birmingham. Um, now, I know, Ian, you, you, you grew up in the north of England. You must have been hugely excited about the prospect of these slightly shorter time train times to Birmingham um, just absolutely rocketing the northern economy into an, another dimension, but it turns out now that this rail line will not reach either end of its planned route. It's not going to reach as far as the north, and it's not even going to reach all the way into central London. They're now talking about stopping it at Old Oak Common, and then people have to get on the tube. Um, so it'll basically take just as long, but with tens of billions of pounds wasted for no fucking reason. This, I mean, obviously, as a representative of the north of England, you must be honoured and delighted that you that this has been bequeathed to your people. I mean, yeah, the slight consolation of it not um, going to the north is that it also isn't going to London. Because, um, <laughs> yeah, all, the thing of, like, when you realise when you live in London that the further out a train stop is, the more um, obscure and like a sort of children's book the um, train station names become. <laughs> so as soon as you get old or common, you're like, right, that's not essential at all. <laughs> um, some of the ones on the outskirts, there's um, Chalfont and Latimer um, <laughs> on the Metropolitan Line, which sounds like a kind of ITV2 um, detective drama. <laughs> um, or they become sort of vaguely sexual innuendos like Northwood, Bushy, Belsize Park and Rodding Valley. <laughs> um but also, so I read that... Well, so trains, well done, by the way, for not bringing cockfosters into that list. That was remarkably disciplined. Yeah, it? well, I've sort of... Um, I, I see it as a mark of becoming a Londoner when you can hear cockfosters on the tube and you don't giggle anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can spot the tourists by people who are like... <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm trains, still there. I'm still giggling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I'm not happy that that joy has gone from my life. Um, <laughs> but they, they're they going to come into Old Oak Common and then they're going to have to get the Elizabeth line 
And there was an article that said that's going to put an unbelievable amount of strain on the Elizabeth line. And it just made me think, um, we, we can't have, um, the Elizabeth line dying in the same way of that Queen Elizabeth died, being ridden by far too many people from Birmingham until she <laughs> stops working. <laughs> Family show in. Family show. <laughs> I. <laughs> I think that might be the most revolting thing anyone said in the entire history of the Bugle. Well done. <laughs> um, I wrote it down. I felt I felt giddy. I had to say yeah. it. No, I thought it was beautiful. Um, Just like mathematically, like I saw all the pieces to that joke hovering behind my head just as a, a beautiful mathematical equation and was like, he's done it. He's cracked it. <laughs> Yep, and and the I think the funniest thing about them kind of doing this to the north is that, like a big part of how they won the last election was getting that the red belt of northern um, previously Labour voting towns, and then with not long for a general election to go, they're sort of announcing basically we don't care about the north, um, <laughs> and the Conservatives are doing this immediately before they have their conference in Manchester. So they're, they're going to cancel the trains to Manchester and then go to Manchester. It, it seems... I mean, if, if you're going to sort of do that to them, you think surely a clever person would have the conference in Manchester, tell them they can't wait for HS2 to come, and then the next week go, oh, no, actually, we're not going to do it. <laughs> they're not even timing their lies. The way they're doing it now, they're they're basically banking on, like, well, how are you going to catch us when we leave? We're just out of here. <laughs> you don't have a, there's no transportation. Because I do think this is, Andy, you hit on this. I think this is an environmentally friendly move, right? What's more environmentally friendly than getting across the country on rapid, widely available green public transportation? And that's staying still, not going anywhere. <laughs> and I think by encouraging the public to the stay where you are initiative, the uh, kind of a shelter in place indefinitely, I think that is going to be huge for, for carbon emissions. Yeah, it's it's very, very exciting time. Also, as you said, this, this HS2 line now, I think has become that rare infrastructure project uh, that benefits all parts of the United Kingdom equally, all the different countries, all the different regions of the United Kingdom are getting as much from this HS2 project as all the others because it's, because it's going to be absolutely f***ing useless to everyone. And that is the kind of <laughs> equality we've been asking for for years. It feels a bit like the, um, the if I'm getting the name right, the Sagrada Familia. Oh yeah, in in Barcelona, the um the sort of unfinished cathedral. Yeah, that it might become a sort of tourist attraction where people will just come and look at the HS2 tracks, <laughs> and and go. Well, the architect said this was going to reach Manchester, and, and we we keep chipping away at it o over the years, <laughs> um, and none of us are going to admit that it it does look terrible, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Another a positive environmental story. Well, one animal that is doing very well uh, is uh, rhinoceroses, which have uh, roared, if indeed a rhinoceros can roar, uh, back up in population. 
to 27,000, which is way more than the half a million uh, that were at large in the 20th century, <laughs> if I've done the maths right, before people decided that it might be a good idea to, sing, uh, to see if killing almost half a million rhinoceroses would be fun or not. Um, and of course, Lego started their luxury Rhino Horn Limited Edition. Um, uh, did, that, did that ever get made? I'm not sure they ever got made. That, I know they did the Hippo Todger Edition, but I don't know if the Rhino Horn one got, got canned or not. But, uh, but well, there has been a, a bit of a recovery in the rhino population is this is this good or bad i mean it's because you know they are an evolutionary threat as as discussed you know we discussed with a number of species that we're supposed to be excited about being being safe but you know the rhino is one of our competitor species they could easily horn us into submission and um now we're we're actively helping them climb back up the ranking yeah i think twenty seven thousand feels like plenty right <laughs> <laughs> totally agree right you so you want a global rhino quota that you mm. cannot, you cannot, you cannot go. A, a one-child oh. policy. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of how many people. That's about how many people are in live in the town that I grew up in, and that's plenty. Right. Okay. I don't need more rhinoceroses <laughs> than people I grew up around. <laughs> but so, but I mean, what if if so? You're saying should we put all twenty-seven rhinoceroses in a single town and see if that helps, or you know, would they? Just all want to leave like you, and you would end up with a New York full of full of rhinoceroses. Who <laughs> rhinoceroses pursuing their dreams, which, as we all know, is environmentally <laughs> catastrophic. <laughs> well, this is it, right? Our good environmental news is like, hey, there's more monsters. Big horned monsters are making a comeback. She's <laughs> like, oh, it couldn't be something fluffy. I guess the message of this podcast is death to rhinoceroses um, for the good, <laughs> for the good of society. And uh, and the environment. I don't think they're really back until we know what one tastes like. Right. That's that's <laughs> when I think we'll we'll know that they've like they're back enough that we don't have to worry. And you can casually be like, oh, this tastes like rhino. And I mean <laughs> normal people, because I think Jeff Bezos knows what a rhinoceros tastes tastes like. He can. But I don't think eyes. I don't think they're they're back enough until regular people like until Burger King has a rhinoceros whopper. <laughs> called the Rhyoperous. <laughs> <laughs> right. So th- so what what so this now is a goal for the conservationists. You will not you will not have succeeded until the right ry- right ry- what did you call it the ry- the rhinoceropper? The Rhyoperous. Yeah. The the Rhyoperous ry- is on the menu at Burger Kings. You will have failed rhinoceros uh, uh, conservationists right. until until aim for that. Reach for the stars. <laughs> um, Burger King, reach for the stars. <laughs> American news now, and uh, what's well, been a bit of a tough week for Joe Biden, the president, uh, who's well had a well, what seems to be most of his weeks now, in which uh, various things have not gone quite as well as they would ideally have gone for a president. Uh, raising the question, is he too old? To which the answer is, is the Pope a Catholic? And the answer to that is yes, and both are that way because their followers have chosen them to be so. Because American politics <laughs> has struggled, it's fair to say, Josh, to embrace the new, as we mentioned on the Bugle uh, before. Since Bill Clinton was born, the only person to be born who's gone on to be president is Barack Obama. And it's now heading towards a quarter of a century since Clinton was 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 president. Um it, it is in an extraordinary state, American politics, and uh, it's quite hard to look ahead to the next, what, year and a bit without feeling uh, th- that humanity is entirely doomed. Uh, so, I mean, mm-hmm. what? how do you see the, the, well, the week Biden's had and what that tells us about American politics now? 
it's bad, right? Because our choices are Joe Biden, who spent the week, he bumped into a flag, he's getting people's names wrong, he's forgetting to shake hands with foreign leaders. And as the president, you have to do, for in America, you have to do one of two things. You can be right, right? You can get things right, you can be astute, or you can do what Donald Trump has always been doing and been wrong on purpose. Like, he just <laughs> says whatever. And even if he accidentally calls someone the wrong name, he just rolls with it and decides that's their name now. Like, eh, that's Bob DeSantis. Doesn't he look more like a Bob? He'd be right at home in a bucket full of apples on Halloween going up and down, wouldn't he, folks? And so I think, like, he's Biden's going to pick a lane. Is he going to, like... Keep it sharp, right? Do a couple crossword puzzles, memorize the clock. Or is he going to do what Trump does and just say whatever and lean into it? Biden does seem like kind of normal for a man of his age. But the problem is when you're relying on your peers and you're 80 years old, there is an enormous likelihood that they'll space out and write in Jimmy Carter or Howdy Doody for president. <laughs> and that's going to tank your whole campaign. So as you said, it's scary. Walking into flagpoles, getting people's names wrong, forgetting to shake people's hands. I mean, I would say, as a, you know, that's probably the worst things an American president has done in living memory. I would say that is way worse than encouraging insurrection and an attack on the heart of American democracy. He walked into a f***ing flagpole, for f***'s sake, I mean, gosh. Are you going to accept that? So there's a new poll, right? And it feels like it's making an undue impact, Andy. The same poll has been widely criticized. There, there's a new poll that says... Biden's approval rating is 37%, which is definitely a bad sign when you're a sitting president's approval rating is less than half of their age. That's <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> but the same poll has been criticized for using an unrepresentative sample of Americans. It showed that Trump's leading Biden by 10% nationally, which seems highly unlikely considering what a huge percentage of Trump's supporters are now in jail for storming the Capitol. <laughs> you'd think that would tip the scales a little bit. Um, there's no chance, right, that Trump wins by that big a margin. Our elections aren't usually that divided in the U.S. If Trump retakes the presidency, it'll be the old-fashioned way that his Republican predecessors did. In fact, he did it himself, losing by millions of votes and taking <laughs> power because of a map for cheating, creating slavers 250 years ago. <laughs> Tradition. <laughs> Ian, I mean, uh, I, I don't know if you're going to planning to vote in the American election next year. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I know you love democracy and you vote as often as you can in as many different places as possible. I mean, would you would you be wary of voting for a man displaying quite such noticeable signs of age? Um, which which one? <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I um. Well, Trump said that there's quite a lot of electoral fraud and um. So according to Trump, who I always believe, I should be able to vote quite easily um, with my um, fake American passport. Yep. Um, um, Jose Rodriguez will be casting his vote. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I was trying to look up because I'm always really fascinated by the US elections. And so with, with the last one, because it was during lockdown, I um, I was going to stay up and do like an all-nighter and um, I baked a cheesecake and made some sort of like <laughs> um, American like food. And I was like, "This is this is gonna be fun." When we're gonna watch um, Trump get sort of ousted, and then um, I couldn't stay awake any longer. And then it was still like four or five days before it was con <laughs> confirmed. And at that point, the cheesecake had long gone. <laughs> um, I think it started off as like jokes about him being old, and. And now it's harder to make those jokes because he's doing stuff that just makes you genuinely worried. <laughs> um, like, um, there was a thing 
I read that he told the same story twice at the same event, like in a speech. And um, I was mortified when I apparently did that on the first and second dates with my girlfriend. Um, <laughs> I started telling a story and she had to tell me that um, I'd already told her that. And we'd only met once before. And <laughs> But but are you you're, are you still together with that girlfriend, Ian? Uh, yes, and I've told well, her that anecdote maybe ten times now. Right. Four, so that's more a, that's, that's, that's Four more years. Four more years. It's a blueprint <laughs> for success. <Yeah. laughs> uh, in more exciting news from America, uh, NASA has had a huge success this week by stealing a bit of an asteroid. Yeah. Um, it uh, filched a bit of the Bennu asteroid as it flew uh, relatively close uh, to Earth and has brought the samples back. Uh, I mean, this is... Very exciting news for fans of little bits of asteroid, uh, Josh. I mean, uh, how has it been received in, uh, in on the streets of New York? Oh, this is huge. People are people are out on the streets. They're chipping up little bits of the sidewalk, holding them up uh, <laughs> as mock asteroids. <laughs> asteroid fever has swept New York City. <laughs> this was a seven-year mission that resulted in the biggest sample of an asteroid ever being removed from space. And I think that's so great, but I do think it was a huge missed opportunity to call this mission Apollo 13's 11. <laughs> I th- <laughs> Um, a professor, I'm, I'm worried about the scope of this, honestly, because you've got to right. worry about what you bring back when you go out into space, right? Because the professor from the Nas- National History Museum in London said that she was feeling quite emotional and tearful about this mission, which made me pause because a British professor feeling tearful, I'm like, oh no, she's for sure been replaced by an alien body double. <laughs> but I do, I love, I like mean this so much. I love that we still let NASA solve like space problems. Like there's so many people whose job is just like, how do we land a thing on a thing? And it's so complicated and they work so hard at it. And then they come back with this little piece of asteroid and we're, and we like America just reacts like they just saw the coolest skateboard trick. Like it's so amazing (laughs) that there's a department of our government employing the most qualified scientists and their mission statement is just like sick, brah. Well, just, I mean, it, it is, you know, with the stories we've looked at today with regard to America, do sort of sum up America as a nation, this kind of incredible scientific achievements and the most inane, insane politics that you could you could devise. Um, strange place. Uh, Ian, were you excited by, um, by this asteroid story? And what else would you like to see hauled in from space? <laughs> um, I was very nervous for them about um they had to keep it sort of completely uncontaminated so i was kind of worrying that there'd be like a crack or or something but i think it would be funny if when they um looked at the sample and amongst the dust there was like a half a like kinder bueno wrapper (laughs) or something like that and they're just like ah for god's sake um or, or the remnant, the remnants of Leica, the Soviet space dog. Um, <laughs> well, do you know, I mean, this is like a real big undertaking to keep it uncontaminated. You know how hard it is with those big astronaut gloves to roll the condom all the way over the astronaut <laughs> asteroid? <laughs> I'm just worried that, you know, the asteroid's you know, parent is going to be, obviously, have you seen any, any film like this? You know, it's going to be bigger and angrier, and it's going to come to get us. And, you know, I think that's probably what... <laughs> What we've brought upon ourselves now. It's like the dinosaurs all over again. It'd be horrible if um, an asteroid was coming towards Earth and you just looked up at it and everyone's like, Did I say this is for my son? (laughs) 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 
Um, Well, that brings to the end of this week's Bugle. Um, thank you for listening. Thanks to Ian and Josh uh, for joining us. Ian, tell us about your Soho Theatre run of your uh, very nearly award, um, triple award-winning show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's such a fine line between it winning so many awards <laughs> and uh, absolutely nothing. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm on at Soho Theatre from the 2nd to the 7th of October at 9.15 in the sort of very cool, fancy kind of downstairs cabaret vibe room um but yeah i'd love you to come along i think i shout consistently for 55 minutes <laughs> what more could you want in a show yeah <laughs> i am also going on tour like um a little sort of uk tour as well so i'm coming to um a number of places that i probably won't be able to remember but <laughs> things like manchester <laughs> glasgow you know that sort of vibe that, yeah okay if you're in a place like manchester or glasgow uh, do go and see ian's uh, ian show uh josh what uh, what have you got coming up I, i'm on the road a little bit i've got um all my tour dates you can find in my weekly newsletter that's marvelous that's joshgondelman.substack.com or if you don't want to hear from me every week uh just joshgondelman.com slash schedule i am this weekend depending on how fast they go back to work i might do a couple dates opening for uh frenemy of the bugle john oliver oh right. in, uh yeah yeah in milwaukee and oh, bloomington indiana and then the next weekend i'm back uh, out in that same part of the country in cincinnati and indianapolis indiana on the wait wait don't tell me stand-up tour and then a few more scattered dates rhode island next week with adam pally uh Pittsburgh coming up, hopefully some more dates soon, or uh, maybe in some point in the future, I will be employed again. <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> well, say hello to John if you do those shows. Uh, those shows I will, for sure. Um, uh, you can hear me on the news quiz. Ian will be appearing. You're doing another another one or two of the news quiz this series, I think. Yeah, I think at the end of the month, yeah. Right, well, do, end uh, of October, yeah. Uh, do tune in uh, for that. That's available on BBC Sounds and eventually after a, 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 a cooling off period on other podcast platforms. Don't forget that you can join the Bugle Voluntary Subscription Scheme. We have a new offering for our premium level voluntary subscribers. There will be a monthly Ask Andy show. You can fire me any questions that you want answered and I will answer some of those questions. Uh, the first one we are going to record next week with questions uh, submitted by the audience at the live show we did in London that was last week's uh, Bugle. Uh, but you will be able to submit your questions for Ask Andy as well via uh, an email address. What's the email address, Chris? Hello, Buglers at thebuglepodcast.com. All right, there we go. Uh, we, maybe we should set up an Ask Andy at thebuglepodcast.com. Oh, don't make idea. me do that. All right. <laughs> I'll, Tell I'll, him to I'll put Ask it. Andy in the subject line. Yeah, okay, that's a good idea. Put Ask Andy in the subject line, and we'll we'll find them. We'll find them better. So uh, do join the Bugle Voluntary Subscription Scheme uh, to give a one-off or a current contribution. Go to thebuglepodcast.com to help keep this show free, flourishing, and independent. Until next week, goodbye. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground 
and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you 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 must be so excited. Listen now.